Welcome to Episode 5 of Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, Professor of Humanities at Holt International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and learning about its past for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, and my producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk. In our last episode, we looked at John Stowe's survey, the first comprehensive book about London's history and geography. In this episode, I want to celebrate a very different work. John Gay's mock heroic, mock Georgic, mock just about everything poem, Trivia, or The Art of Walking the Streets of London, published in 1716. In the interval between these two works, London was utterly transformed. As we saw last time, Stowe was acutely aware of the city's slow decay, but in the end, the city didn't decay slowly. It was suddenly obliterated by the Great Fire. Rebuilt London would have startled him. It looked different from anything he knew. Street after street of uniform, apparently identical, flat-fronted brick buildings replaced the ramshackle oddities of the city he knew. The open spaces between London and Westminster quickly filled up, and elegant squares and avenues appeared in Bloomsbury, St. James's, and even in Kensington. Along the river to the east, wharves and shipyards suddenly expanded. Spitalfields became something wholly unprecedented, an immigrant neighborhood, and St. Giles was a slum, something for which our language did not yet even have a word. Older London neighborhoods changed too. They specialized. The city became associated exclusively with commerce and finance, Westminster with politics and government administration, St. James's with a fashionable social elite, Covent Garden with more or less disreputable entertainment. Social changes were as disorienting as geographical ones. Church and monarchy, the great focal points of London's cultural life in the past, were increasingly peripheral. When William and Mary moved to Kensington Palace, that became literally as well as figuratively true. Their roles were taken by party politics, manners, and good taste. New institutions, the coffee house, the club, the shop, embodied these new preoccupations. Aristocrats still set fashions and exercised political power and patronage, but a middle class of businessmen and bureaucrats was increasingly important in London's economic and cultural life. In the first years of the 18th century, this middle class found a voice, a literature which sometimes celebrated, sometimes deplored the growing social, cultural, and even moral complexity of the expanding metropolis. It was produced by professional writers, themselves an important innovation. The essays of Addison and Steele and the novels of Daniel Defoe are perhaps the best known of these works, but there were many more and of all the literature articulating new tastes and values and voicing new anxieties, John Gay's trivia is closest to my heart. John Gay was born in Barnstable, a small, bustling, prosperous North Devon port in 1685. The Gays were locally important people. One grandfather had been mayor, the other the town's most prominent nonconformist preacher, But Gay lost both parents by the time he was 10, and the family wealth was gone. At the age of 17, after time at the local grammar school, he was apprenticed to a London mercer. Gay's interests were not commercial. 
He had been writing poetry since his school days and started making connections and looking for hack journalism work as soon as he arrived in London. His ambition was to become a professional writer. His charm, modesty, cleverness, and fluency endeared him to many, and he was soon producing small pieces for London's new journals and equally evanescent work for the theater. He found his way to the group of Tory wits around Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift and was a founder of the Scribblerist Club, an informal group of literary cheerleaders for the Tory government. Gay's goal was a place, a lucrative, undemanding post in the government bureaucracy, one that would pay the rent and give him time to produce work of lasting value. But when Queen Anne died in 1714, Gay's friends found themselves permanently out of power. His hopes of that place vanished, and he had to make his living entirely by writing. Entertainment paid better than art, and Gay was very good at producing literary entertainment. One of his first successes was trivia. You will already have gathered that trivia is very different from Stowe's survey. No one could have been less interested in antiquarian research than Gay. He made no attempt to be authoritative and much preferred to turn a phrase or provoke a laugh than to unearth an obscure fact or transcribe an inscription. Where Stowe went everywhere, Gay ignored much of London. The East End, for example, apparently did not interest him at all. Even though he was Lord Burlington's guest at Chiswick House as he wrote trivia, he did not mention the suburbs. But Gay was acutely aware of the labyrinthine complexity and density of the central districts. Many of the antitheses that shape his elegant couplets turn on contrasts between the fashionable glitter of St. James, the heterogeneous busyness of Covent Garden, the dark menace of St. Giles, the startling quiet of city courts out of working hours. You can hear this from the start. Gay begins with an invocation to the goddess of the crossroads. Thou, trivia, goddess, aid my song. Through spacious streets conduct thy bard along. By thee transported I securely stray where winding alleys lead the doubtful way. The silent court and opening square explore and long perplexing lanes untrod before. But it soon becomes clear that the London of trivia is not just a collection of contrasting places, it is primarily people. And the people Gay cares most about are neither stock characters, the Pall Mall fop, the city gent, the comic yokel from the country, nor the great and the good. The people he obsessively observes are those who actually thronged London's streets. The chairmen and footmen, the porters and carters, the tradesmen and street sellers who made London work. What Stowe was to London's physical fabric, Gay is to London's population. Gay's narrator deserves some close attention. He, he is definitely male, carefully places himself in the middle class and does so in many ways. For example, he insists that he walks by choice, not by necessity. He is prosperous enough with surplus time as well as money, to be able to do so for recreation, but he is not rich, pompous, or selfish enough to be carried. He cannot afford a carriage, a horse, or even a sedan chair, so he is not one of the elite, but he claims he would not want such luxury even if he could afford it. 
He chooses to move among working people, but he is not of them. And this allows him to claim a moral superiority over those who might think themselves his betters. See yon chariot on its harness swing with Flanders mares and on an archid spring. That wretch to gain an equipage and place betrayed his sister to a lewd embrace. May the proud chariot never be my fate if purchased at so mean, so dear a rate. Or rather give me sweet content on foot, wrapped in my virtue and a good surtout. The narrator disdains the narcissism of fashion and the irresponsibility of conspicuous consumption, partly because they are wasteful and impractical, partly because they separate the rich from their fellow Londoners and prevent them from feeling a shared humanity, which in the end they cannot avoid. I've seen a bow in some ill-fated hour, when o'er the stone's choked kennels swell the shower, in gilded chariot lull, he with disdain views spattered passengers all drenched in rain. With mud filled high, the rumbling cart draws near. Now rule thy prancing steeds, laced charioteer. The dustman lashes on with spiteful rage. His ponderous spokes thy painted wheel engage. Crushed is thy pride. Down falls the shrieking bow. The slabby pavement crystal fragments strow. Black floods of mire the embroidered coat disgrace. And mud enwraps the otters of his face. For this narrator, walking the streets of London becomes not just a pastime, but a complex mission. On one side of his vocation is to help people like him, precariously occupying the narrow space between manual labor and gentry, between the coach and the gutter, maintain their place. In other words, he is teaching us how to be safely bourgeois. Consider, reader, what fatigues I've known, the toils, the perils of the wintry town, what riot scene, what bustling crowds I bored, how oft I crossed where carts and coaches roared, yet shall I bless my labors if mankind their future safety from my dangers find. The other side of his mission is to develop in himself and in his reader a sympathetic, humane understanding of the lives of those who share the streets with him. If Stowe is comprehensive, Gay is immersive, often literally so. His narrator experiences London at street level with his shoes deep in mire and body constantly jostled by traffic. For him, walking the streets of London is a contact sport, and the first task he sets himself is to coach us to play that sport safely. Here's a typical passage. If clothed in black you tread the busy town, or if distinguished by the reverend gown, three trades avoid. Oft in the mingling press, the barber's apron soils the sable dress. Shun the perfumer's touch with cautious eye, nor let the baker's step advance too nigh. Ye walkers, too, that youthful colors wear, three sullying trades avoid with equal care. 
The little chimney sweeper skulks along and marks with sooty stains the heedless throng when small coal murmurs in the hoarser throat from smutty dangers guard thy threatened coat. The dustman's cart offends thy clothes and eyes when through the street a cloud of ashes flies. But whether black or lighter dyes are worn, the chandler's basket on his shoulder borne with tallow spots thy coat. Resign the way to shun the surly butcher's greasy tray. The narrator's attitude to the urban experience is primarily defensive. Walking London streets in London weather is dangerous. It requires the kind of knowledge, planning, and specialized equipment modern readers might associate with skin diving or mountain climbing. The walker's first task is to acquire an appropriate wardrobe, and this involves a strong-minded, even heroic, disdain for fashion. When all the mall in leafy ruin lies, and damsels first renew their oyster cries, then let the prudent walker shoes provide, not of the Spanish or Morocco hide. The wooden heel may raise the dancer's bound, and with the scalloped top his step be crowned. Let firm, well-hammered souls protect thy feet through freezing snows and rains and soaking sleet. Nor should it prove thy less important care to choose a proper coat for winter's wear. True Whitney broadcloth with its shag unshorn, unpierced is in the lasting tempest worn. That garment best the winter's rage defends, whose shapeless form in ample plates depends. By various names in various countries known, yet held in all the true surtout alone, be thine of kersey firm. Though small the cost, then brave unwet the rain, unchilled the frost. The walker will also need knowledge, how to predict the weather and how to find his way around town. Most of all, he must know how to avoid trouble. Where the mob gathers, swiftly shoot along, nor idly mingle in the noisy throng. Lured by the silver hilt amid the swarm, the subtle artist will thy side disarm. Nor is thy flaxen wig with safety worn. High on the shoulder in a basket borne lurks the sly boy whose hand to rapine bread plucks off the curling honors of thy head. Here dives the skulking thief with practice slight and unfelt fingers makes thy pockets light. Whereas now thy watch with all its trinkets flow and thy late snuff box is no more thy own. The hazards of urban life require preparation, training, self-restraint, vigilance. But the moral imperative to protect oneself does not override civic responsibility. And Gay's narrator is at his most humanely attractive when articulating our civic obligations to those less able to manage the risks. Let due civilities be strictly paid, the walls surrender to the hooded maid. Nor let thy sturdy elbows hasty rage jostle the feeble steps of trembling age. And when the porter bends beneath his load and pants for breath, clear thou the crowded road. But above all, the groping blind direct, and from the pressing throng the lame protect. London streets are crowded with animals as well as people, and the narrator's sympathies and sense of obligation extend to them as well. 
Here, laden carts with thundering wagons meet. Wheels clash with wheels and bar the narrow street. The lashing whip resounds, the horses strain, and blood in anguish bursts a swelling vein. O oh, barbarous men, your cruel breasts assuage. Why vent ye on the generous steed your rage? Does not his service earn your daily bread? Your wives, your children, by his labors fed. But the narrator's sympathies have limits. Self-assertion is necessary to make one's way through London safely. When the bully, with assuming pace, cocks his broad hat, edged round with tarnished lace, yield not the way, defy his strutting pride, and thrust him to the muddy kennel's side. He never turns again, nor dares oppose, but mutters coward curses as he goes. To sum up, Gay's narrator trains us to be civilized, and civilization involves self-discipline, alertness, and practical knowledge. But maybe most of all, it requires a difficult balance between rugged independence and attentive humanitarian sympathy. We need to be safe, to be ourselves, to be observant, to be an active part of our community. That's enough for now. To follow me down our second alleyway and find out more about Gay as a Fabulist, please become a Patreon subscriber. The link is on our website, sidestreets.co.uk. Next time, we will look at Mirza Abul Hassan Khan, an observer of London who was himself desperately in need of a guide. I hope you will join us then. This episode was researched, written, and presented by me, Alan Hertz. My producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk.